0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the AgroInnovations.com podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. And this episode of the podcast is a rather special episode because uh, the interview is being done not by myself, but actually by Mike Moon, who offered to collaborate with the podcast and uh, do this interview. And that's an important thing because I've always felt that uh, the Innovations podcast is a collaborative effort. And so it's good to see collaborators stepping forward and stepping up to the plate to get involved. So without any further ado, here is Mike Moon's interview with Mark Shepard.
1: Mark Shepard is both a permaculture trainer and farmer. He teaches courses at his new forest farm in southwestern Wisconsin. He's also farming there on a model that he's building based on the oak savanna, which is um, one of the biomes or bioregions that are indigenous to the upper Midwest. We'll be talking to him about how that's going and about the beauty of permaculture. So thanks for joining us today, Mark.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for asking.
1: So first of all, let's just do a little primer on permaculture. I'm sure a lot of folks listening know what it means, but it's always good to get a little foundation for the rest of the conversation. So tell us what permaculture is.
2: The word permaculture was coined by the Australian Bill Mollison and his grad student um, David Holmgren way back in the 1980s. Originally, they had intended it to be a contraction between the words permanent and agriculture, but they hadn't been involved in their work for long before they realized that it also meant permanent culture. And it it brings up the old uh, cart before the horse uh, logic loop. How can you have a permanent culture unless you have a permanent agriculture? And of course, how can you develop a permanent agriculture unless you have a permanent culture? And that's the uh, place we find ourselves in today is how can we develop a permanent culture that, that um, is here to stay instead of an annual uh, boom-and-bust cycle um, culture that's based on annual plants as it's agriculture, uh, as we have been for the past 10,000 years or so.
1: Permaculture can be practiced around the world in all the climate zones at every latitude. Here in the upper Midwest, there are prairies, forests, and sort of that in-between area the The savanna, um, you've modeled your experiment there, New Forest Farm, on the oak savannah. Can you tell us about that and how it relates to the pre-contact ecosystems that were here and that were functional for so many centuries? Well, that's a
2: that's a uh, a bigger question than I think you realize you ask. Uh, What's interesting about, if I say the word prairie, most people get a picture in their mind of what prairie is. And when I say forest, most people get a picture in their mind of what forest is. Not as many people have a picture in their mind of what savanna is. Um, All three of those are not things uh, that give you a picture in your mind. All three of those, prairie, savanna, and forest, are phases along a, a large continuum of cycling in uh, the change of plant communities and animal communities through time. And uh, upon European uh, contact with uh, this continent, oh, about a third, maybe a little bit more than a third of uh, the continent was in the phase called savanna, which uh, any of you driving around the upper Midwest <clears throat> certainly see a lot of old fields that are, that are getting overgrown by brush and trees that are eventually uh, going to be turning into forest. Savannah is that phase. If you look at the long uh, geological historic time, Savannah is the phase where prairies are turning into forest, uh, and they can actually get stuck in that phase, mostly uh, through the disturbances of fire and grazing. So uh, periodic fires coming through would get rid of a lot of the small brush, but some of the more fire-tolerant plants, uh, for example, oak, uh, hazelnut, apple, Uh, would persist, and plums would persist in the landscape as, you know, groves of trees, clumps of trees, uh, brushy areas. So savanna was a phase somewhere between prairie and forest, and it's that phase that we're imitating in our agriculture because it's that phase that offers offers us the greatest opportunities to harvest the elements, sun, rain, water, minerals, and turn it into some sort of agricultural product that we can sell. When, when you look at our project and how we got it started, we had to start with what was here, which was bare black dirt agriculture. You look all around you in the Midwest, and currently right now there's nothing out there. All the ground, you know, all the crops have been harvested. The corn's gone, the beans are gone, uh, and it's bare black dirt. Hard, there's no ecosystem there,
1: <clears throat> hardly
2: at all. Uh, the soil is practically dead because it's been sprayed by toxic chemicals, fertilizers, and and herbicides, fungicides, for year after year after year. It's compacted. Uh, Most of the organic matter is burned away. So we had to start there. That's what this farm was when we first got got it. And if you're thinking thinking about growing nut trees, you don't just plant a nut tree and have a crop starting next year. So our our project had to start with planting of all of the uh, longer-term perennial species, but we also would grow between the rows, would grow annual crops between the rows, uh... in order to cash flow in the early years and that was mostly um, organic produce um, for for wholesale organic produce um... at one point in time we had about sixteen acres of produce that we were we were uh, growing annual produce Um, we've grown small grains we've actually grown corn and beans Uh, now we probably only grow four to five acres of annual produce. We have several acres of asparagus, which is a perennial, long-term perennial. All of these are grown in between the rows of the uh, woody crops, and our primary woody crops are chestnuts, hazelnuts, uh, and apples, and then a whole host of other woody crops that I don't call our main three because they're really not producing yet, and I don't know how much uh, income to expect off of those.
1: So right now, what livestock do you have on the farm?
2: Oh, I've got a... uh, Pregnant sow, it's my breeding pair of pigs, so I don't know how many I've got in the oven, but there's mom and dad and a bunch in the oven, and then three beef steers right now. We cut way back in the wintertime um, because we don't like to have to store extra feeds mm-hmm. to feed them through the wintertime and provide them with shelter. We would prefer to uh, raise young stock in the summertime when the grass is growing like crazy because since we're concentrating on growing woody crops, grass will actually um, compete with your woody crops for moisture and nutrients and so if we go out there and we graze it with animals we can we can uh, reduce the competition from the grass and actually apply fertilizer um, so grazing between the rows of trees helps the trees to grow faster and it also gives us uh, you know grass-fed beef and pork as as one of our side effects side benefits
1: so in the summer then what's your head count what's the livestock going to be looking like on the farm there
2: Well, oh, it depends it depends on how how many um how many bull calves my dairy farmer neighbors have extra and depends on you know what the market price if if uh, beef calves are expensive i'm not going to buy a lot in the springtime Mm -hmm. Um, and it also depends on how uh, how prolific my pigs are at breeding sometimes they have a lot sometimes they don't have many at all
1: so all that grazing means that you don't have to go through there with a tractor cut the grass spend money on fuel use petroleum any of that it's just all taken care of and it's productive
2: yeah, for, for a large, to a large extent, yeah. Okay. Okay. Which, which—that's one of the goals of, of this project here, was to develop an intentionally designed uh, ecosystem mimic that we can manage entirely with income-producing crops or animals, and to not use any fossil fuels. And if, if you, in your mind, look at a National Geographic movie of, of the savannah with the elephants and the wildebeest and fox <laughs> and all those different things there. There's nobody out there plowing, planting, fertilizing, doing pest control, weed control, etc., and it seems to be doing okay. And then there's also these, you know, these the, the whoever lives at that particular place is running around with their own herds of animals out in the savanna area as well. Well, why can't we imitate that, uh, the structure of the ecosystem, imitate all the diversity of the ecosystem, do it on purpose with economically productive crops, trees, shrubs, vines. Uh, animals, etc. why can't we have a farm that is, uh, requires absolutely no fossil fuel input at all? If it requires no fossil fuel input, no expensive equipment, um, you know, no fertilizers that have to be applied, no pest control that has to be done, what are your expenses? And if your expenses uh, approach zero uh, and then the productivity of the ecosystem increases until it hits a, a, a theoretical maximum, as your as your um, profit potential increases and your expenses go down, that looks like a winning formula.
1: So you have your woody crops in, you have your domestic animals grazing and helping you manage the grasses, and they're being productive and they're keeping your costs down. Talk about the other systems that are in place that help with pest control and just the larger network of systems that are operating there around you that you're engaged with in this maybe symbiotic or maybe cooperative way?
2: Uh, we've, been, we've been certified organic since 1995, and what's really interesting is when the organic inspector asks us the question, what's your pest control program? They expect me to hand them a sheet that shows what different um, certified organic um, pesticides <clears throat> that I use to control bugs. Uh, instead of saying that, I, uh, it's almost glib now when I answer them. I say, well, we use what's called population ecology and they kind of scratch their head and look at you funny. Um, And I'm going to have to encapsulate this in like five and a half seconds, but if if you have a um, a traditional apple orchard, most people get a picture of what a traditional apple orchard is, is apple trees and only apple trees and underneath is grass and maybe even under the trees it's either tilled or sprayed with herbicide. Um, But basically the only um, species of, of woody plant there is apples. Well, if you've, got, if you've got 100 acres of apples, who are you going to attract? You're going to attract all the pests and all the diseases that thrive on high concentrations of apples. So you're creating a pest magnet uh, that's easy to see. Most insects, uh, in addition to using um, their, their eyesight, their vision, they're, they're using things like radio waves, ultraviolet, infrared, all these different other kinds of uh, ways of perceiving what's out there Um, sense of smell, obviously. And so in one sense, it's like a uh, a commercial airliner coming in for a landing at an airport when it's totally foggy. That airliner can still land because it has its radar out there, and it senses where the runway is, and and it's able to come in for a landing. Well, let's take a coddling moth, for example. Here's this coddling moth. Uh, She has been um, bred, which means she has eggs developing in her, and if she doesn't get rid of those eggs in a hurry, she's going to explode. Mm -hmm. So she puts out her radar, she goes flying through the air, and all of a sudden she sees this big, huge scan, 100 acres of apple trees. Boom, she zips over the apple trees, and she uh, does a carpet bombing with with codling moth eggs. Well, in our situation, we're going for a deep diversity. The more diverse the the ecosystem is, uh, the less of any one food that there is available for any particular pest, and codling moth on apples is, is a very major pest. So a codling moth is flying along, and it it kind of thinks it sees an apple tree over there, but the apple tree has grapevines uh, trained on it. It's next to or underneath a chestnut tree. There's hazelnuts at its feet. It's surrounded by daffodils and irises and comfrey and roses and raspberries and currants and... um, it kind of thinks it sees an apple tree in that tangle somewhere, so it comes flying in. It's, it's harder for it to find its target to lay its eggs on, um, so it slows it down. Uh, once it gets to the target, if it makes it to the target, um, it only has one little tree to lay its eggs on, then it's got to go find another one. Well, in the meantime, there's all kinds of uh, um, insect-eating birds, and three of, three of the, my favorite insect-eating birds... We'll have eastern kingbirds, which will hang out at the top of the trees, and they'll, they'll fly out and up, grabbing insects out of the air. And there's eastern phoebes that hang out in the mid-range of the tree, and they kind of go straight out. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down to the ground to get their, to get their insects. And there's eastern bluebirds, which come out of the tree and jump down to the ground and, and mostly are eating insects off the ground. So if the moth can find the apple tree it may get eaten by one of three different insect-eating birds or any number of bats that are out there. And then once its it's eggs have been laid, its caterpillars could be parasitized by other uh, parasitic wasps and insects that are in the ecosystem. And so I I get my picture that it's it's not a super-friendly environment for pests because the diversity is so great that there's other things that want to eat the pest.
1: Yeah, and it's on all the time.
2: It's on all the time, 24-hour pest control. And then, uh, you know, my costs drop down to zero. Yes, I will get losses due to insects um, and diseases, but I'm not counting that because uh, I'm only harvesting what's an absolute um, labor-free, cost-free profit. Mm -hmm. And when I I go to pick the apples, um, we grade them in the field. The ones that have insect damage get thrown on the ground. um, And then the ones that don't have insect damage, those are the ones that, Uh, that will go for our own uh, home use. And most of our home use, most of our use is for uh, making cider. Our cider is the the traditional um, fermented alcoholic hard apple cider.
1: And the ones you're throwing on the ground, what's the strategy there?
2: The strategy there is as soon as we've gone through picking, we we go through, we pick all the apples, the ones that are on the ground, we we move the electric fence and turn the um, uh, cattle and pig loose, and, and they clean up after us.
1: Let's talk about the nuts a little bit. Uh, when did you first plant them?
2: Well, as, as with any uh, woody crop, we're, we're constantly planting more, but we started back in 1995 with our first nut trees, and we started with variety trials. No matter, what the, whatever, no matter what the perennial crops were or are that we grow, we start with variety trials until we find out which varieties do best. Then we plant broad-scale those particular varieties. Then we begin to breed our own from those, uh, those winter varieties. And so we started back in 1995.
1: So how are they doing after 13 years? Is it looking like it's it's productive? Is it? Do you, do you consider it a success so far?
2: We're oh my goodness, do I think it's working? yet? Yeah, we're actually we have a delightful problem of uh, being in a situation where our yields are increasing. Uh, we, we've just stepped into like the exponential growth uh, of our woody crops yields right now, mm-hmm. and we don't have you, you don't have the cash flow to build the storage and processing facilities for a crop unless you actually have the crop, which is producing the cash flow. Mm-hmm. So we've been, what we've been having to do is create and invent the, the machinery and equipment ahead of time before we need it. Then we get enough crop to justify using the equipment, and then we you know, have to modify the equipment and figure out how it works, um, <laughs> if it works well enough. And what I mean by equipment, our, our like, harvesters, um, Sorter separators, um, like with uh, hazelnuts, we have huskers and cleaners and uh, nutcrackers and, and like farm scale type equipment, not like tabletop equipment and not industry size equipment.
1: Talk about the challenges of harvesting a little bit. Uh, your topography, you're on an incline out there, so that has you know specific challenges to the tasks that you have to do every year.
2: Yeah, we're in, we're in rolling hill country. The uh, ground is classified by the USDA as highly erodible. And one of the reasons why we got the farm uh, so inexpensively when we did 15 years ago was the fact that it was so highly erodible that most of the, the rich topsoil washed down to the valleys. And uh, it, it's, um, you know, how do you compare it to somebody? It's, it's rolling hills, rolling hills. And when, when it rains more than an inch and a half, if it was a bare, uh, bare black dirt, or even a cornfield, an annual field, there'd be gullies and rips all through it. There's there's historic um, gullies all through this farm where it was eroded back when it was uh, under the plow.
1: And to take something of a tangent, uh, talk about what happens out there during large rain events.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, especially on our our particular property, because the first thing that we did when we first got the property is we. Uh, uh, Basically, seat of the pants surveyed the whole thing, and we built swales, which were water collection um, ditches on contour that are designed to soak the water. Any overland water flow would be captured by these ditches, held in the ditches. Um, Some would get concentrated to what we call pocket ponds, which are basically soaker holes. And uh, the idea is to not let one drop of water leave the farm because that water landed on our farm and it belongs on our farm. (laughs) We store it in the soil, and then the trees, uh, the trees. Take it up out of the soil, and they'll be even more able to survive drought, um, which we've had several different you know drought years. Sure. And it's obvious now; it wasn't at first, but all of all of the trees. We don't have swales on every row of trees, but the the trees that are just below a swale are bigger than the trees that don't have a swale. So the, the cumulative effect of 15 years worth of extra water soaking in the ground is visible now.
1: Wow! Just 15 years, it shows up. Talk about um, chestnuts and hazelnuts as a food product.
2: Chestnuts are great. Chest- uh, the reason why I pick chestnuts and hazels, one is because um, both crops, the majority of, of them that, that are consumed in this country are imported from somewhere else. Most uh, chestnuts come from uh, China, Korea, and Italy. Most hazelnuts come from uh, Turkey. Uh, another reason why they're great, so I don't have to create markets; there are already big markets there. Another reason why they're great is chestnut is a tree, hazelnut is a shrub. We can be growing a two-story agriculture with a, a tree on top of a shrub on top of the grass. Um, another reason why it's so great is that the chestnut is primarily a carbohydrate; there's hardly uh, hardly any oil in it at all. It's very low fat. Uh, about you know two to four percent protein. It's a complete protein, like uh, egg white protein. So that's a carbohydrate that's like corn that grows on a tree. And hazelnuts are a typical um, tree nut. They're about two-thirds oil, so it's a high-oil nut, um, high-protein nut, and it also has a shell that burns as hot as anthracite coal. So you get a corn that grows in a tree, that's your chestnut, Then you get your soybeans that grow in a bush, that's your hazelnuts, with three times the oil per kernel weight as a soybean, and then um, shell which burns as hot as coal so the total energy available out of the perennial plants that you only plant once that now have, uh, like a chestnut tree at 100 foot tall, you've got 100 feet of photosynthesis instead of a little soybean plant knee-high, and you never have to plant it again, three times the oil per, per kernel weight and extra shells. Uh, I really want somebody to do all the math and figure out all of the energy available per acre on, on a perennial uh, polyculture and compare it to straight soybeans. And you'll see that the perennial polyculture will win hand over fist, especially as your uh, costs approach zero.
1: Yeah, your costs are going down, and then beyond the fruit and nuts, you have other forms of productivity on your farm too.
2: Right, because you know, I I kind of consider the chestnuts, hazels, and apples, and the produce as the, as the big four. Those are like the four main crops that we grow, but there's oodles of other things. Um, that, are, that are in the system as well and I can be as opportunistic as I want and some years I'll be selling lots of one thing some years I'll be selling lots of another a couple of years ago uh, you know, we had a bumper crop of morel mushrooms in the apple orchard if you're, if you're a conventional apple orchardist and you're spraying fungicides do you think you're going to get any morel <laughs> mushrooms growing in your in your orchard? no, even if you're certified organic you're still spraying fungicides and you're going to be preventing fungus and there was more in, in morels in my apple orchard than there was in apples. So there's all kinds of uh, opportunities stuck in the cracks. What I do also is I look at my, my systems as they're growing, and when weeds come in, I'll put weeds in quotes, um, I try to figure out what niche are those weeds filling, what, what, where do they fit, How, what's their, their sun requirements, their shade requirements, their water requirements, what are they producing, and can I market something from that, in a classic example, are elderberries that started showing up in my chestnuts. And instead of ripping them out and trying to fight against nature uh, forever, I decided to enlist them as my helpers. and I planted oodles of elderberries because I could harvest the elderberries, uh, press the juice to make elderberry wine, and then I can sell the pulp to a company that makes um, herbal teas. And so something that was a problem became a profit.
1: So uh, so spell that out a little bit. What was the benefit of of identifying the elderberries and then encouraging them or even planting them?
2: The benefit was that it's, there, there was sunlight, um, moisture, minerals available that some plant was going to fill. If you ha- have ever grown a garden, um, if, if you don't fill that niche with plants, nature's going to fill it with plants and you call them weeds. So I had these spaces in my, in my chestnut trees in between the rows that was getting filled by some kind of plants that we could have called weeds. Well, when I figured out which weeds uh, I liked being in with my chestnuts, since plants are going to show up there anyways, I might as well put the plants that I want there. Other ones that were coming in were like multiflora rose, um, which is uh, rather aggressive and thorny, doesn't have a lot of markets. Uh, And also, prickly ash was another one that was coming in uh, the same place and the same, you know, was filling the same niche as the uh, elderberries were. So I figured I might as well do a preemptive strike and fill the space full of elderberries before it gets filled full of multi-floor rows and uh, prickly ash.
1: And let's get back to the nuts for a second. Uh, Where are you selling them? Um,
2: Most of it is just uh, direct to the consumer. People are interested in nuts and they buy nuts from me. That's most of them. And I'm I'm working on some. you know, beginning contacts with uh, value-added products. I work with a, uh, a farm down the road for me called One Sun Farm. They make you know cookies and cakes and desserts and all that kind of stuff to sell at farmers market. Um, working with uh, um, nut butters in Chicago and Potter's Crackers in Madison, just to just to figure out how to get you know my nut products into their value-added products. I'm not selling any at any quantity there. Most of the quantity goes to people who just buy nuts for sale.
1: So you're planning on a pretty substantial time window here, you know, years, decades, centuries, and larger. Uh, can you talk about your, your overall crop rotation, sort of start to finish, that you've envisioned here?
2: Well, one of the, one of the things with, um, if we go back to your garden or an annual crop field with weeds coming in, your annual plants in nature, when there's a disturbance and there's bare black dirt soil exposed, uh, it gets colonized first by annual plants, and the agricultural annual plants that, that humans use, you know, are, are your grains, your your beans, your corn, your wheat, your oats, that sort of thing. Over time, perennial grasses want to move into that space, uh, especially ones with underground rhizomes. So your grasses will colonize an area, and it'll move from a disturbed. Uh, state into a grassland state, which is what we would typically call prairie. Then eventually, your bramble bushes, thorny bushes, uh, shrubs, small trees start moving into the grassland, and it goes through the savanna phase. And then eventually, uh, most savanna trees are sun-loving. They can't tolerate the shade, so eventually seeds from shade-tolerant trees get established in the shade underneath the sun-loving trees, and they begin to dominate the site. Um, and then after the first wave of shade-tolerant um, trees comes through, it was like a second or third wave of shade-tolerant trees that come through, uh, and eventually it's a, it's a deep, dark, shady, moist forest so far removed from either bare black dirt or grassland that you wouldn't recognize it. And in this particular part of the country here, uh, to go from bare black dirt to a deep, shade, uh, uh, moist, shady forest takes about 1,800 years. And so our crop rotation plan is we'll basically have an 1,800-year crop rotation. After the first 1,800 years go by, uh, we can harvest um, old-growth eastern hemlock and then plow the ground up and start over again with corn. It would imitate, for example, a tornado coming by and just wiping out a section of forest. Now you've got all these trees, you know, ripped apart and and, uh, the soil torn up, and now there's bare black dirt exposed again, and the cycle starts over. Wow. On the east coast, it would be hurricanes. In the Midwest, it was mostly uh, tornadoes and fire that would, that would open up holes in the forest um, and or maintain the grasslands. When you got to the high plains, it was more uh, moisture scarcity combined with fire that would keep it as grassland or savannas. But
1: okay.
2: so where we're at right now would be mostly blowdowns and tornadoes, that sort of thing.
1: As we're wrapping up here, uh, what is the message that you want people to take out of this?
2: One of the things that, that I'm trying to do is to produce the carbohydrates, proteins, and oils that uh, our food system uses currently right now, but they get them from annual plants. <clears throat> the same carbohydrates, proteins, and oils, that becomes your Cheetos, your noodles, your bread, uh, feed for animals if you're, if you're eating animal products that are you know, maybe even uh, turning into milk. All of the carbohydrates, proteins, and oils that we get from annual plants can come from perennial plants. And the perennial plants, by nature, um, are so much more energy efficient over time and so much more cost effective over time that their, their cost approaches zero. So if we can redesign ecosystems to produce the same uh, agricultural carbohydrates, proteins, and oils that we need, we can now have a perennial agriculture across the continent um, and you down there in Madison, Wisconsin, can keep eating your Cheetos and feel good about. It. So know where your food is coming from, and and do what you can to seek food that came from perennial systems, grass meat and dairy products, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, nut and bee seed products, and. Um,
1: and your experience so far is showing you that this is agriculturally productive and economically viable.
2: Yeah, the second part, the economically viable. What's interesting about that. It's not that the system isn't viable, the agricultural system isn't viable. It's that our economic system fails to adequately describe reality. All you've got to do is look around right now, what's going on in the whole uh, you know, economic crisis in this country right here. It's, there's The machines that were here yesterday that made all the goods and did all the services that, that we want to do tomorrow, they're still here. Why aren't they cranking at full bore? Because the number system doesn't work. It's not that the agricultural system doesn't work. It's that the numbers used to describe it don't work. And I don't claim to be able to correct the economic uh, system that we currently operate under. I just have to work with what we
1: got. Well, Mark, thanks for your time today.
2: Well, thanks for yours.
1: To find out more about Mark Shepard, go to MidwestPermaculture.com. There's a tab over there on the left that you click on it and you'll see his name pop out and Click on his name there and and you can find out about his farm. He'll be teaching permaculture certification courses this coming summer. So if you really want to see what's going on out there and learn from him directly, that's a great way to do that. Thanks to Frank Aragona for sharing his access to all the podcasters out there. This program was produced at the studios of WORT, Community Radio in Madison, Wisconsin.
0: And uh, thanks for listening. My name is Mike Moon. Well, that concludes this interview of the Agro Innovations Podcast. And before I sign out, I'd like to acknowledge both Mark Shepard for being generous with his time and for doing such a great job at putting permaculture into practice. And I'd also, of course, like to thank Mike Moon for your collaboration on the Agro Innovations Podcast. It is much appreciated by myself. Uh, It very much helps me to get episodes out uh, more frequently and also just helps to take a little bit of a load off of me. So, Mike, keep up the good work. And if there's anybody out there listening and thinking they would like to try their hand at something like this, uh, go for it. Get in touch with me. You can uh, contact the Agro Innovations podcast via podcast at agroinnovations.com. Uh, And whether you'd like to collaborate or not, please get in touch with me. Let me know your comments, your thoughts, your ideas. Uh, Show ideas are always welcome. This is, as I've said, a collaborative effort. I'd like to remind you that this and all episodes of the Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Saludos.